0: This morning we explored Psalm eighty six, which was really a a template for prayer, which God gave to us, gives to us uh, to pray to Him for protection during times of affliction. Psalm ninety-one really is a, a confident declaration of God's protection during affliction. It's really as if the psalmist in Psalm 91 is turning around and saying to the psalmist from 86 saying, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. God is going to protect you. He, He's protected me. And so listen to me when I tell you that, that God's got you. And psalm 91 is a, a wonderful, wonderful psalm. It's a psalm of hope that's written for uh, those who need hope. It's the word of God, and so I encourage you to please give your attention to it and to believe it. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence, You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up And show him my salvation. Let us pray for God's blessing on his word. Father in heaven, we ask that you would be pleased to write your word on our heart. That you would use this message tonight to open up your word to us. And soften our hearts by it. And comforted. uh, Know you better. Well, this is a psalm really a confident declaration of God's protection. Now we need to ask the all-important question, uh, protection from what? And we see a list of threats in verses 3 through 6. The psalmist talks about the snare of the fowler, the deadly pestilence, flying arrows. We know that the Bible speaks of, of both physical and material realities, but it also speaks of spiritual realities, and and so it's safe to conclude that the Bible also speaks of physical and material dangers, but also spiritual dangers. And one of the keys to uh, interpreting the scriptures is is trying to determine what is God really speaking about, and often He uses metaphors of, of physical realities to refer to, uh, to spiritual realities. And so um, what we really need to be uh, trying to discern uh, this evening is, is what is God telling us through Psalm 91. And I, I'm going to submit to you that um, the Psalms are spiritual songs and that the ultimate application of Psalm 91 and, and the protection to which it speaks from God is is really protection. And I think we can uh, find a key to this understanding in the gospel of Matthew uh, in chapter 4. Uh, feel free to turn there and read or simply listen. But in Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, uh, we find Jesus as he's been led into the wilderness after having been baptized by the Spirit. And he goes into the wilderness that Satan Uh, And uh, we read in in chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone a passage I'm sure most of us are familiar with. Did you recognize this passage from Psalm 91? It's verses 11 and 12. Satan is quoting Psalm 91 in an effort to tempt Jesus. And on the surface, Satan's goal seems pretty straightforward. He's trying to get uh, Jesus to test God. And he's saying, Jesus, if you really are the son of God, you can jump off of this temple and his, his angels will save you. That's what Psalm 91 says. And Jesus, with great wisdom, perfect wisdom, responds and says, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, it is also written, you shall not tempt the Lord. And so Satan's attack seems straightforward, and it is. Uh, he's trying to get Jesus to, to test to test God. And Christ's response is straightforward. He says, no, that's a, that's a sin. But remember what is said about Satan in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It said that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field. And so I want to suggest that perhaps this temptation of Jesus is, is what it appears to be, but there's something a little more subtle going on there. I believe that Satan is really misapplying Psalm 91 to physical danger rather than spiritual danger, and I and I believe that is the case. Uh, if we look at this phrase, uh, "strike your foot against a stone," and what does that expression mean when it says in Psalm 91 um, that the angels will lift you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone? And what is What does it mean when Satan says this in the Gospel of Matthew? It's a a strange expression. Uh, Does it mean to say that the angels will keep Christ from tripping, from stubbing his toe? Uh, Certainly in the context of the Gospel, it seems a little out of place. If he were to throw himself off of the temple, uh, a broken foot is probably the least of his concerns. But as I re- reflected on this phrase, I I thought of a stumbling block. What is a stumbling block? It's, it's to cause someone else to sin. And so what Psalm 91 is, is really saying is that God's angels will God's angels will keep Christ from sin as well. It's really a, a metaphor for spiritual for a spiritual threat and God's spiritual protection. And I'd just like you to, to notice the irony here that Satan is despiritualizing this text in order to be a spiritual stumbling stone. And, and that's a significant thing for us to consider because that is frequently how Satan works in our lives. He, he wants to draw our attention away from heavenly realities and he wants us to, to be distracted by earthly concerns. He wants to bring our focus away from God and from his glory and from his protection. And he wants us to be consumed with, with the things of this world, forgetting of the world that is to come. But the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1-3, through three, that if then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Well, what does that mean? How are we to set our minds on things that are above? If we go a little further in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He tells us that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I was just reminded this morning that that's in the vows that we take to be members of this church, that we vow to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in all that we do. What does that mean? What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of of God can be applied in a number of ways, but uh, there's a a straightforward um, way of of understanding it as a a synonym simply for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news that God has paid your debt through his son. And as a result, he commands us to pursue righteousness, to, to put off sin and to put on Holiness. And that's exactly what Satan doesn't want us to He wants us to forget about the gospel. He wants us to forget that we've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. He wants us to be distracted by the things of this earth, to be consumed in our minds and in our hearts with, with earthly concerns so that he can cause us to sin. But God knows this. He knows our enemy well. And so he's given us Psalm 91 to remind us of this spiritual danger. But not just to remind us of the spiritual danger, but to remind us of this which God promises. And he reminds us that it's he alone who can protect us from the. Other. On verses 3 through 6, we have these lists of dangers. The psalmist tells us that, Uh, He will deliver us from the snare of the fowler. Well, if you're like me, you may have to look up the word fowler. I didn't know exactly what it was, but it it means a bird hunter. And I believe that this is really a, a metaphor to describe our fundamental relationship to Satan. He's a bird hunter, and we are birds. He is the predator, and we are his prey. And as I've gathered, we probably have a few hunters in this in this gathering tonight. And if there's one thing that we know about hunting, they have a hunter has one goal. It's to, to catch his prey and to kill it. And Satan is a skilled hunter. He's knowledgeable. He studies his prey. He he knows what makes us tick. He knows our comings and goings. And so he knows where to place these traps. He knows how to get us caught. Perhaps. One of the scariest things about this metaphor is that when a trap is working as it should, when a a prey is caught in this trap, there's absolutely nothing he can do on his own. He must have help. And that's that's the way it is with sin sometimes, isn't it? We get stuck in it. We get caught in it. And no matter what, we just keep getting drawn back into it. And that's the implication of verse 3 is that um, we're stuck in this snare, and we need to be a uh, relationship that we have to Satan, the fowler. Uh, and then we come up across a couple of more metaphors, really two, um, two contrasting metaphors, and, and I believe them to be um, metaphors for sin. Um, we have the terror of the night, uh, the pestilence that stalks in darkness, and then that's contrasted with the arrow that flies by day. And the destruction, which way we have, we have the sin which is concealed, which is not obvious. I believe this is really the sin that's in our own heart. And then we have the sin that surrounds us, the sin that we see uh, in, in everywhere we look, really. Um, and it's rather obvious. Well, what do we know about pestilence? Leviticus tells us is a metaphor for sin. And we know quite a a bit about pest. We know that it it can be deadly. Uh, We know that it spreads from person to person. We know that it can be uh, quite difficult to detect. We know that it's very hard, if not impossible, to control. And and we know that like a terror in the night, it produces extreme fear in ourselves and and in others. It certainly has that potential. And so if This is the metaphor that God is using to describe the sin in our own heart. I think we need to realize that it's not a trivial matter. Sin is not a a benign issue. The sin that exists within us needs to be rooted out constantly. And then we contrast that with the arrow that flies by day, the destruction that wastes at noonday. And as I said, I, I think this is referencing the sin that's all on It's very obvious. And it would be easy to think that um, what we are witnessing here in America is unprecedented, that um, our nation has come to a new level of immorality. And in one sense, I think that's true. But we need to realize, we need to recall that at times in Israel's history, uh, they worshipped idols. Uh, They were engaged in adultery and in fornication uh, and even child sacrifice. Have always been faced uh, with the threat of the arrow that flies by day, the destruction which wastes at noonday. And I think there's really two dangers um, of this threat, two dangers to the obvious sin which surrounds us. And the first one is is rather obvious. It's it's assimilation, uh, used to it, uh, it can become so normalized to us uh, that we can start to adopt it into our own heart and into our own lives, knowingly or unknowingly and I think the other danger is perhaps on the other end of the spectrum it's looking around us and seeing the sin which exists in the world and in our culture and becoming uh, uh, growing um, despondent uh, becoming uh, despaired about the the status of our nation and I think both of these dangers really serve Satan's end they both distract us from the heavenly realities. And it's not that we shouldn't speak to the world. It's not that we should not seek to reform uh, society in some sense and and be a light to the world. But I think there's a way in which we can feel consumed with what's going on around us that we forget about what. And we see this in the parable of the sower uh, in the Gospels. You remember the parable of the, the sower who scatters seed, the seed being the word of God. And some falls on good soil and it takes root and it grows up, but it grows up among thorns. And the thorns are described as the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches which end up. And so it's not just the pleasures of this world. It's not just the sinful and are a threat to us, but it's the cares of this world. It's um, it's, the issue of the day. Um, and, and I'm not suggesting that we shy away from these things altogether, but what I'm suggesting is there's a real temptation to become consumed. When election season rolls around, we we tend to forget who our king is. Watching the news. Every day people walk away from the Lord because something better comes along. Every day people walk away because something seems to be more. But God tells us that if we abide in him, that we will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day, that a thousand may fall at our side, ten thousand at our right hand, but it will not come near us. And he says that we will only look with our eyes and see. And that's not always an easy thing to do, to look around at. It requires spiritual eyes. And that's because there are two things that the wicked – the unbeliever wants us to believe that true joy can be found apart. And the unbeliever wants us to believe. And at times, we have to admit that we believe this. Uh, this is what we're suggesting when we do sin. We struggle to repent. Uh, we're really um, suggesting that I can find true joy apart from Christ and that, um, that this sin is really not going to cost me anything. But this leads us to an unavoidable – the observation is this, that we're still caught in the snare. We still live with the deadly pestilence inside of us. We're still threatened by the arrows which fly by day and the destruction which wastes at noonday. And so we might be led to wonder, how could this be our psalm? How could these promises be our promises, either – God is not telling the truth, but these promises are not for me. Well, I'd like you to consider that this psalm was ultimately directed toward him. And as he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, he would have studied Psalm 91. He would have known it really well. It would have been written on his heart so that when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, He would have remembered God's promise to the heir of the fowler. He would have remembered God's promise to protect him from the deadly pestilence and the arrow and destruction. We can easily make the mistake of conflating the two natures of Christ, his God nature and his man nature. And they're really inseparable. But but we can't confuse the one for the other. And for this reason, we have to understand that his fulfillment of the covenant of works, his fulfilling what Adam was unable to do in the garden, had to be done as a man. And it had to be done through a reliance upon his heavenly Father and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this could only come out of a perfect love for God the Father and God the Spirit. And this is how Christ obtained a righteousness which he himself did not need. How he obtained a righteousness which you cannot earn. And it's a righteousness which he gives to us by grace through faith. And this is why in verse 4 we're told that his faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. I'd like to conclude by way of application. Are we to understand that these promises really just apply to our glorified life, uh, that they really uh, just cover our eternal state before God? Are we to believe that God doesn't actually promise us protection from sin today? Of course not. When 2012 Hurricane Sandy was approaching the New England coast, and on the shore of Connecticut, the HMS Bounty, which was a tall ship replica of the original HMS Bounty, set out to sea. The captain, wanting to make a deadline in Florida, believed that he could uh, sail out into the Atlantic and skirt the storm and come in around behind it. Well, as they were at sea, Hurricane Sandy took an unexpected turn. The bounty found itself in the middle Well, the captain and one other crew member went down with the ship. And You can read a 16-page uh, Coast Guard report on what happened, what transpired, and you'll read uh, that the ship was taking on water, that it had structural damage. Um, the generator stopped working. It couldn't uh, pump out the water. There were crew members who were injured of bad events, but if you were to ask anyone Why the bounty sank? I think the only reasonable answer that could be is because the captain left. Why do I tell you this story? Well, I think verses 1 and verses in Psalm 91 tell us a similar story. He who dwells in the shelter of the most will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Verse 9 says, Because you have made the most high who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed. Come near your tent. You see, God's protection is conditional The God's protection and we can have the most watertight roof on the block but if we're in the front yard and we can't blame the roof and if we're not dwelling in God you see Jesus lived without sin in this world not because he was the son of God and he was But he lived without sin in this world, fulfilling the covenant of works because he made the Lord his dwelling. The only way to grow in sanctification is to make the Lord. How do we do that? How do we dwell in the Lord? I think verses 14 through 16 tell us that. God says, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him. God is telling us that we must grow in our love for him. But he promises to give us that protection in Christ. It's a guarantee. And and it's through Christ. 1 John 4.19 says that we love because he first loved us. God demonstrates his own love. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ dying for us is that we might love him, that we might draw near to him, and that we might receive that protection from him. You see, the greatest threat that we face is life apart from God, not just eternally, but now. That greatest threat we face, which separates us from God, is sin and so Psalm 91 reminds us that in Christ we are protected both eternally and presently from sin if we hold fast to him and lord we are thankful for this reminder that we draw near to you to receive uh, in that we know your love and lord i ask that each one of us stirred up in our hearts uh, eager to obey what you've done for us in christ and